Why do we gather at church each week for word and sacrament? Hi, this is Him We Proclaim with Dr. John Fonville. We're in a series called The Gift Giver and His Gathered Guests. Today we're talking about the liturgy of the church. These are the things that we do together, such as singing, scripture reading, praying, participating in the Lord's table and baptism. How do these activities make our lives God-centered, Christ-focused, and gospel-shaped? Let's listen now to a message called, Worship is the Heart of Discipleship, Part 1. We gather together to be served by our triune God. He is the gift giver, and we are his gathered guest who come week after week to receive his manifold and abundant gifts to us. That means this, is that when we gather together corporately to worship as a church, the worship of the church is a gift before it is an action. This is a gift for you each week. Every week is Christmas Day at church. And so James Smith, who is a professor of philosophy at Calvin College, I'm going to be borrowing from him this morning quite a bit because it's so helpful He wrote a book called You Are What You Love. It's a great book. It's a very interesting book. But this is what he says. He says, worship isn't just something we do. Worship is where God does something to us. You see, the Reformers in the Reformation saw that the liturgy, the way the church worships, They saw that that liturgy is God's actions, and then it is our faithful response to his actions. And so the whole governing idea of Reformed liturgy is to enter into the sphere of God's acting. We want to be present where God has promised to be present to give us his gifts, to act upon us, to do something for us. So we're not just coming into the presence of God in corporate worship. Listen, we are coming into the active work of God where he does something to us every single week when we gather. And that's where I want to be, don't you? And so the liturgy is a meeting between God and God's people. It is a meeting in which both parties do act, but it is a meeting where God initiates and we respond. I'll come back to this in a minute, but this is just simply a way of working out law and gospel. That's that's all we're talking about. And so we gather together each Lord's Day, first to be served by our triune God, who is the gift giver, and to receive his manifold and abundant gifts. Our triune God is perfectly revealed to us in his son, Jesus Christ, who is the gift giver. We saw last week that our God, who is triune, delights in giving gifts to his people because he is love. And God is love because he's a trinity. Let me just give you a couple more examples. I think this is very important for you to see. The scriptures teach us that Jesus is the gift of God's love to God's people. We quote it all the time, but we don't think about it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only unique son. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15, Paul describes Jesus as the inexpressible gift of God. He says, thanks be to God for his 
inexpressible gift. He's referring to Jesus. Jesus is our inexpressible gift. He is not only our Lord, but he's also our servant, we saw last week. As the gift of God's love, Jesus was sent by the Father, empowered by the Spirit. He said, listen, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, as the gift of God, has come to serve needy sinners. And so Jesus is the gift of God's love. Our salvation is a gift of God's love. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 and verse 8. Paul says, but God, this is God the Father, God the Father being rich in mercy. Aren't you glad for that? God the Father being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Our salvation is a gift of God's love to us. Faithful church leadership is the ascended Lord's gift to the church. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 8. The Apostle Paul says, when Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father, by virtue of his ascension, he pours out the spoils of his gifts, his victory upon his church, which he says this, he gave gifts to men. The word gifts there is gifted ones. In the context, these are leaders of the church who are faithful to give God's people the gospel in its purity. And so the ascended Christ gave gifts, gifted ones to the church. The Holy Spirit is a gift of God's love. In Acts chapter 8, verse 20, the apostle Peter refers to the Holy Spirit as, quote, the gift of God. In his work on the Trinity, Augustine, or as we learned this morning, maybe Augustine, (laughs) it depends on where you're from, He wrote a work called On the Trinity, and in this he says, quote, There is no gift of God more excellent than this, the Holy Spirit. And so we are called by grace to gather together each week in the Lord's days as gathered guests to receive blessings, comfort, and gifts from the gift giver. He delights in giving gifts to his people. And we saw that to emphasize this very point, early Reformed, early Lutheran and early Anglican churches, all in the Reformed tradition of the Christian faith, they all referred to the church's worship as the divine service. It was called the divine service because they were emphasizing the fact that God who is divine comes to serve his people through the means of grace or the gifts that he gives to his people, word and sacrament. And through that, he gives himself and his gifts to the people. And though the divine service, they would say, consists of God's service as well as our response, our service, before there is our service response, there is what? There is God's service to us. There is gift. That's just law and gospel. And so the primary, though not exclusive, emphasis on corporate worship is on God's gracious service to needy sinners week in and week out. So that was the first big lesson that I wanted you to understand as to why we gather together. Here's the second lesson I want you to get about why we come together as a church to worship and why the liturgy of the church is so important. 
Listen to this. Here's lesson number two. The church's worship or the church's liturgy is the heart of discipleship. The church's worship, the church's liturgy is the heart of discipleship. Now, it's regrettable for many evangelicals, and I was once guilty of this myself, that the word liturgy is a bad word, right? Um, It's loaded with connotations that make us really suspicious. It sounds like vain repetition. It's the frozen chosen. It's that dead rote religion. It's mechanical. It's Roman Catholic. It's ritualistic. It's quenching the spirit. If you listen close enough and go to any given church on a Sunday that doesn't have liturgy, so they say, I'll come back to that. But if you listen close enough to the spontaneous and extemporaneous liturgy of the free churches, their prayers are, are deemed to be free of the constraints of ritual observance, right? But if you listen carefully over a period of time in those churches, all their so-called spontaneous prayers led by the Holy Spirit, they are stock phrases strung together by bad theology. And it's just as rote, it is just as ritualistic, it is just as, as, as mechanical as they argue liturgical churches are. If you go with me to a say a, a, a church that emphasizes this free, we're just going to be we're just going to sit here, and if the Lord doesn't lead me to preach today, I'm I'm just gonna, I'm not going to preach today. I promise you, if you went with me to that church for six months, at the end of it, you and I could write down their liturgy and could write down all the phrases they're going to say every Sunday, every time. Dear God, Lord, we come to you. We just this, we just that. It's what people call the just prayers of the Christian. We just, we just, we just. And moreover, the the vast majority of uh, so-called spontaneous prayer teaches the congregation how to pray out of the poverty of their spirits rather than the riches of God's word. They seem to forget that we have 150 inspired wrote prayers in the Old Testament called the Psalms, and they're all prayers. See, here's the point. Here's the point I'm making. Every church has a liturgy, and the liturgy powerfully and effectively shapes and forms believers and makes them into some type of a disciple. Because the liturgy is at the heart of the church's discipleship. I stated last week as we opened up this series that true worship of God, the liturgy, true worship of God and knowledge of salvation were the heart and soul of the Reformation. The issue for the Protestant reformers was not being anti-liturgical versus liturgical. Their response to the medieval church was not to be anti-liturgical, but listen, to be properly liturgical. 
That's why the Protestant reformers were very, very much concerned and gave great attention to the church's liturgy, how the church worships, what they do when they gather together. I took a whole course on this in my doctorate studies and and studied for six months on Calvin's work in Geneva and Strasbourg and all of his liturgies that he, he, he took great pains to craft and to write out. Because for Calvin, the Reformation of the church's worship was the issue of the Reformation. Why was this? All of the Protestant reformers understood that liturgies powerfully and effectively shape and form believers. That's why James Smith in his book, You Are What You Love, he says this. He says, the most potent charged, transformative sight of the Holy Spirit's work is found in the most unlikely of places. Where is that place? The church. He says the church is the body of Christ and the Holy Spirit is the soul of the church and the church's liturgy is the habitation of the Holy Spirit. Say it like this. Liturgy is how you and I learn how to put on Christ, how to be like Christ. The purpose of the church's corporate worship and liturgy is to shape and mold and form us into the likeness of Christ. It is to give us a gospel-shaped, Christ-centered life. And so it is by means of word and sacrament, the gifts of God for the people of God, that the Holy Spirit comes to us and gives us through faith Christ in all of his saving benefits every single time. And so the church's worship is a uniquely intense sight of the Holy Spirit's transformative presence. That's where I want to be week in and week out exactly where the living God has promised to meet me. So as disciples of Christ, we learn and are shaped and formed by means of repetition, liturgies. Think of, culture, think of liturgies as just simply a set of rituals and practices done by a group of people repeatedly. God made us creatures of habit, Right? You probably did the exact same thing this morning that you did last Sunday morning. He made us creatures of habit. And as creatures of habit, our lives are powerfully and effectively shaped by the repetition of rituals and practices. That is liturgies. And so whether we're aware of it or not, our thinking, our desires, the way we live and conduct ourselves are all shaped by habit-forming practices Or you call them liturgies. Liturgies powerfully inform how we think, what we desire, how we live. In his his book that I mentioned, James Smith, he, he has a great chapter entitled, Learning to Read Secular Liturgies. And so these secular, these cultural liturgies, these everyday rituals and practices done by a group of people uh, repeatedly... We are constantly immersed in secular cultural liturgies all the time. So what are some of these secular cultural liturgies that constantly shape and form us? Let me give you three examples this morning. 
Um, and then what do these cultural liturgies do to us? Here's the first cultural liturgy. This is a big one for me because I'm a sports fan. Sports, the sporting event. What do sporting events, sports, what does that cultural liturgy do to us? A sporting event is designed to make you a fan, right? A sporting event aims your love toward a team or a player in order to make you a fan. Just follow diehard Seminole and Gator fans for a football season, right? Follow them for an entire season, and you will see how their sports liturgy shapes and forms their lives, particularly on game day. They all of a sudden transform. Their faces are painted half blue, half orange, half gold, or half, what is it, maroon? I'm a North Carolina Tar Heel fan, so forgive me. Uh, um, you should like North Carolina. Carolina blue sky. I mean, that's just, that's just how it is. Anyway, these, these sports liturgy shapes and forms their lives each week. They live for college game day, right? Seminole and Gator fans have all their rituals and practices for game day. Some of you know better than I do what those rituals and practices are. But every weekend, you transform into a Gator, or you transform into a Seminole. Um, because that's what it's designed to do. These rituals and practices of sports make a person into a Seminole or a, game, or a Gator fan. I can't talk about Georgia, sorry. Just, Georgia's not allowed here. <laughs> um, that's sports, sports liturgies. They shape us. They make us into fans. Here's another one, a rock concert. Rock concerts are designed to make you a spectator. At a concert, you're not the participant, or else if you try to be, <laughs> that concert's going to empty out quite quick, right? Um, you're a passive audience. You're a spectator. You don't go to concerts to participate in the performance. You go to the concert to watch the performance, the rock concert liturgy makes you a part of the audience. It, it transforms you into being a spectator of what someone else is doing. Incidentally, that was precisely the problem with medieval worship. And the reformers saw that, which is why they transformed their services. So in a rock concert liturgy, you're a spectator, you're not a participator. Here's a third one that I think most of us are very familiar with, the mall liturgy. The shopping mall liturgy is designed to make you a consumer, right? We're all very familiar with this. Uh, James Smith in his book speaks of shopping malls as a temple whose space and architecture very much resembles that of medieval cathedrals. He says, we ought not to think that the mall is a neutral space or that it isn't religious. Listen to what he says about this cultural liturgy. He says, the mall is a religious site, not because it is theological, but because it is liturgical. Its spiritual significance and threat isn't found in its ideas or messages, and there are lots of ideas and messages at the mall. If you go to Lululemon, or if you go to Gap, or if you go to Forever 21, or whatever it is, they all have a message for you. 
But the spiritual significance isn't found in its ideas and messages, but in its rituals. The mall doesn't really care what you think, but it is very much interested in what you love. Victoria's secret is that she's actually after your heart. So let's go through the mall liturgy for a second. We all have these customary processions to the temple in our culture. A lot of church services start and begin with the processional. They bring down the Bible, they bring down the cross, they bring down the lit candles, and and everybody stands because we are giving honor to the fact that God is coming to his people, right? So we, we make our customary processions to the temple, and when we arrive, we approach a large stately structure, and upon our approach, we have this kind of a euphoric sense of transcendence as we gaze into the large glass atriums with these columns that are towering to the sky and drawing our gaze upward and outward. And we're like, there, right? It's the mall. And so we enter through these large glass doors and we begin to browse through all the little prayer chapels that are all along the sides of the temple. And all these little chapels are devoted to their individual little saints, And then we pause at these various chapels to reflect on the icons. Those are called mannequins. And these icons, they inspire us to be imitators of these exemplars of the faith. Here's an example. We go to Dick's Sporting Goods because my boys love to go to Dick's Sporting Goods. We go to Dick's Sporting Goods. And Dick's Sporting Goods, they always have their saints, their icons, their mannequins, right? They have them in Nike compression shirts. And they have them in Nike compression shorts. And these icons have bulging muscles just ripping through everything. Ripped abs, tiny waist, toned thighs, and they're just standing there towering over you as you gaze up, and they're saying, you too can be like me, right? (laughs) If you'll just put on the Nike compression, you'll have a washboard eight-pack. And so these icons, these saints embody for us concrete images of the good life. These are the ideals of perfection to which we will aspire. And so we get excited and we begin to walk around in the temple, in the cathedral, until we find the saint of the chapel that we most adore, right? And there we find it. And we browse the racks. We're looking for that experience because we know on this cell rack, it's going to be there. And the offering's going to provide the fulfillment that we're looking for. And all of a sudden, we are delighted to discover skinny jeans. Right? There it is, my new holy found object in hand. And so I've got to complete my worship. So I go to the altar, which is called the register. And I consummate my act of worship And I give my gift, which for most Americans is the credit card. 
And I give my gift in exchange for the magical power of becoming like that ripped Nike sports icon. I'm going to become the young, hip, forever 21. Wouldn't that be nice? I'm going to become the hot, burning seraph, winged angel from Victoria's Secret. Listen carefully. There is an intentional reason why the models of Victoria's Secret are called angels and they put wings on their back because it's all about worship. So we perform the mall ritual, listen, in every liturgical season. Every season, the saints are adorned in different colors and different textures. And they keep inviting us in. The season has changed. Come check out what is new. Here's the point. Liturgies form people. Thanks, John. You just heard a message entitled, Worship is the Heart of Discipleship, Part 1. More from the Gift Giver series coming up next time. The heart of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. With each message, our prayer is you would hear, believe, and enjoy the gospel in your life. If you want to re-listen to or share any of these messages, you can find our smartphone app or locate our podcast by searching for Dr. John Fonville or Him We Proclaim. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to learn more about his local church in Jacksonville, Florida, you can visit ParamountChurch.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.